Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's sermon is brought to us by pastoral candidate Clint Shamblin. He's preaching from Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37. The question of what makes a Christian, what makes a gospel Christian seems audacious or maybe a little arrogant to try to answer. Uh, right now, I think the world is going through a little bit of a reclamation project of how to answer that question, what makes a Christian, are we not? I think for many, many years, we had a definite answer of what makes a Christian. If I was to ask you, you might be able to identify some things that classically have done so. Uh, those older generations would say, well, it's very simple. Uh, you don't cuss, you don't smoke, you don't gamble, you don't drink. Uh, you're a good person, and you go to church Easter, Christmas, and maybe once every other month, and you're a Christian. You give to charities, uh, you, you pray before meals, and that was, that was kind of stereotypical of what a Christian was. I think today we might be wrestling with what is a Christian, and that idea has really blown up in our faces just a little bit because the definition of that centers on our opinion or our hopes or our thoughts or our feelings a great deal. Now, with this idea, I'm asking the question, what makes a gospel-centered Christian? I'm very specific when I say that. I'm not talking about dogmatic or legalistic or even identifiable Christianity. What I'm talking about is gospel-centered believers. Uh, for the first time in American history, a recent poll just indicated that less than 50% of Americans identify as Christians. First time in the history of the country since its founding. And this has radically altered our interaction with people of the world that don't identify. People have left the church. And it may seem kind of weird to try to answer what makes a gospel Christian. We don't like answering it. Do you, you know why we don't like answering it? Because it seems very, very arrogant for us to say we know what's best and we know what a Christian makes. Here's why I want to dissuade you from believing that. It's actually not our belief and our feelings and our thoughts of what is a gospel-centered Christian. Actually, this is an old problem that Christ dealt with over and over and over and over again. People would come to him countless times within Scripture and he would have to declare to them if you want to follow me, be careful. Slow down. You want to identify with me and my father's name, it's going to mean something different for you than maybe what you're assuming. Actually, Christ answered the question, what is a gospel-centered person? What is a Jesus-following Christian in the story of the Good Samaritan? And so what I want to do today for you is I want to chronicle through the Good Samaritan. I want to kind of highlight a few things. And then I want to say three things about the Good Samaritan. A gospel-centered Christian is somebody whose intellectual DNA has changed, whose social DNA has changed, and lastly, whose heart DNA has changed. A gospel-centered Christian is somebody whose intellectual DNA has changed, whose social DNA has changed, and lastly, whose heart DNA has changed. Uh, and with this, I know we have a question and answer afterwards. I actually like doing question and answers on the sermon as well. I typically keep that. So if you have a question as I'm going, feel free to ask me that later as Derek and Jeremy ask me questions. I'd love to answer anything I can in this. Because the Good Samaritan is a tough pill to swallow. So let me try to explain what happened in the Good Samaritan. Jesus is teaching and doing ministry and going along and meeting with people. And he runs across a lawyer. 
Now, I don't know if Steph's here with us today. I met Steph, and she is a lawyer, I believe, uh, patent law. I think I would have made a great lawyer because I want to be right all the time, uh, and that's what a lawyer is essentially in my mind, is just somebody who wants to prove themselves right. And I say that because if you look at the Good Samaritan, this lawyer does that with Jesus a great deal. He comes up to him, and he says essentially this question. He says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? Echoing other stories. He doesn't say it just like that, but there's this happened time and time to Jesus where people would say, hey, how do I be saved? How do I know I'm a Christian? How, how do I get the kingdom? And he would, he would ask Jesus that. And typically when you ask a question, you know the difference between a rhetorical question and an actual question, right? This was a rhetorical question. The lawyer was not saying, hey, Jesus, teach me. He was saying, hey, Jesus, affirm in me that my way of thinking and acting and doing and living is good. Tell me I'm fine. Tell me I'm a Christian. Tell me I'm gospel-centered. So he asks Jesus, hey, what must I do? What's a saved person? How do I get to heaven? Now, really quick, uh, isn't that a question a lot of people are asking these days? What is good? How do I get good things? How do I stave off bad things? How do I not look at the world and the gun violence and the racism and the problems and the upheaval and the division? And how do I not interact with that? How do I have something good? It's a question I, I find on the tongues and lips of a lot of people. Probably you may have those questions and others you know have that question. This lawyer comes and he says, what must I do to enter heaven? And Jesus reads him perfectly. <laughs> you guys know those people in, that li- in your life? They just know what you're, you're trying to get at before you can even do it. My son, he tries to con me into video games all the time. And I give the dad eye and he's like, oh no, I'm not getting video games today. Like, I know what you're trying to do, son. You're being really sweet to me. You're bringing me ice cream in the middle of the day. A question's coming. The lawyer is asking Jesus, trying to be reassured of his insecurities, and Jesus answers him very directly. The answer of what do I do to get to heaven, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the Good Samaritan, you and I should take away because it is our answer of what is a gospel-centered person. Take this away from you today as you leave The Good Samaritan is a gospel-centered person. And I want to show you why actually this is insane. This story of the Good Samaritan is bananas crazy. It's upside down. It's inverted. It's totally not appropriate for the lawyer that comes to Christ. And let me show you why. This man was a religious man. He was dogmatic. He was legalistic. He was a good person. The Samaritan, on the other hand, was a half-breed, a mutt Not racially pure, not ethnically pure, not culturally pure, not religiously pure. Didn't listen to the right podcast, read the right books, go to the right school, come from the right family line. The Samaritan was somebody outside the bounds of what is, quote, good. Jesus tells the story in which this not good, half-breed, half-mutt, bad lineage person is the hero of the story. The Good Samaritan is the hero, is the exemplar, is the person that if you were to say what makes somebody go to heaven, Jesus is telling you the Good Samaritan does. And here's what he does. He takes his, his faith, he takes his hope, he takes his dreams, and he gives it to another. He runs across a Israelite, a, quote, good person that's in a ditch, dead and dying, and has no concept of who's going to help him. And the Samaritan serves him indiscriminately, without care or concern of anything this guy paying back to him. 
And what's incredible about this entire story is Jesus is saying the good Samaritan picks him up, takes him to a location to heal him, to care for him. We're going to get into that, what that means, how he cared for him, because it changes your social DNA. But the biggest thing I want you to see in the good Samaritan is this. Our concept of what is good in this world, if we're good or somebody else is good, is completely backwards is completely inverted from Christ's gospel. I want to show you what that looks like. So that's a quick rundown of the Good Samaritan. A mutt half-breed serves a good person, takes him to a location to heal him up. And we're going to talk about the Good Samaritan, how he did so, and then for you and I, what we must do after that. And those are the three points. The Good Samaritan's intellectual DNA was changed from natural DNA. His social DNA was changed from natural social order. And his heart DNA was changed from a natural heart. I want to talk about those three things. First, the intellectual DNA. Gospel means changing your intellectual DNA, and it's this. This inversion of hero from a religious, a good, right lineage, pure Israelite, pure Jewish, pure moral person to the good Samaritan. What he was doing to the lawyer was actually quite remarkable. What he was doing to the lawyer when asked the question, how do I get to heaven? The lawyer thought he was going to be the hero of the story, Right? How many of you guys read the Bible or maybe think of a movie? How many of you think of a movie and you watch Ocean's Eleven or you watch the Batman or something like that and you're like, oh, I could be Catwoman. Oh, I could be Batman. And we insert ourselves into the hero role. Uh, Francis Chan was speaking at my college one time and he showed a clip of Rocky. Uh, And if you have no concept of who Rocky is, I get it. Creed are the new movies in which old Sylvester Stallone is in. (laughs) That is Rocky. Rocky was fantastic uh, for me growing up. And there's this scene in which Rocky runs up the stairs of Philadelphia to his statue. And everybody's looking at this and you envision yourself being Rocky. The sound is pumping, the music is going, and you're feeling all the things flow. You're like, yes. And Francis Chan says he, he goes the entire time and he says, I'm going to show you who we are in Christ And the whole scene happens, Rocky's jumping up and down, kids are encircling him, and he stops the movie, and he says, okay, you see, you see the person that's way in the back. (laughs) You you notice the, the kid that's furthest back, you can barely see an eye, and maybe a nose, and maybe a little bit of an ear. That's us. And Rocky is Christ, this man in which we all come around and support and love and cherish because he's the victor. The Good Samaritan wanted himself to supplant Christ as the main character, and Jesus inverts it and says, you're actually the guy in the ditch. You're actually the good, moral, religiously pure, ethnically pure person that's in the ditch, dead and dying and without help. And the Good Samaritan is Christ. Somebody who's rejected, somebody who's thrown out, somebody who's not looked at as good or pure or anything because of how he teaches, because of how he lives, because of who he associates with, because he has dinners with tax collectors. That's who Jesus is. And this inversion of who we are in the story actually changes our intellectual DNA. Because I think as people, what we do is we have three main ways of figuring out somebody is good in our lives or how we think they are good. We typically think people are good based upon their tribe, their affection, and their nature. These are typically the three ways we think. Somebody is good if they're part of our tribe. Somebody is good if they are part of uh, being affectionate to me, if they're friends. And then lastly, somebody is good just by their naturalism, 
I want to talk about each one of those and show you how the Good Samaritan flips each and every one of those social traits of how we interact with people upside down and changes our thinking about them. Tribalism. Tribalism used to be, excuse me, if you look like me, if you talk like me, I can see somebody that looks like me and, and you and I are connected. We're the same kin. Now, this used to be very, very predominant. It's still predominant in today's society. But I actually want to talk about tribalism in a little different way because I think it's changed a little bit. It's no longer do you look like me, do we come from the same lineage, the same country of origin, although that's still there. And I think it's changed more to fundamentalism and tribalism together. Or maybe introduce you to a term, non-critical fundamentalism. Meaning... You and I are good. People are good if they agree to everything I believe. Don't we think that today? Look at the news. Look at people, how they talk. You are good if you think like I do. If, if you go along with my view on X, Y, and Z, you pick the topic. And if somebody's outside of your camp, your tribe, you can't associate with them, can we? Let me try to give you examples of this anti-critical fundamentalism in which we say to ourselves, you are good if you're part of our tribe. COVID has really done a lot to migration patterns of populations in America. It's changed a great deal of how people move. There is a governor of a state who had an influx of people starting to come in because during COVID we all made decisions of maybe tax base or cost of living or maybe go to a different state that doesn't have mask mandates. Maybe people moved outside of the city into the suburbs where schools weren't mask mandated. These sorts of decisions were being made. And one particular governor of a state saw this influx of people. Her, her state grew by 20% during COVID. And her comment was this, and she said so on an interview. She said, we would love to have you come to our state, but don't try to change us. It was very evident. It was very... It was very out in front. You may come to our state, you may be part of us, but don't you dare try to change us. And what she was saying is, we're the good ones. How we act, how we think, how we talk, we're good. And you need to get in line with what we're doing. That's tribalism on an intellectual level. You can't think differently. And if you are divergent, you're kicked out. Or maybe put it this way, uh, we have two political systems in our world, two parties. No matter what side you are on in that spectrum, let me ask you, how progressive must you remain progressive to stay part of the progressive camp? How conservative must you stay to remain part of the conservative camp? Can you agree with 75%? 60%? Before people start saying you're no longer progressive, you're no longer conservative, you're no longer one of us and you need to get out. That happens quite often with how people think, and that is tribalism. If you have an opposite worldview, you cannot be part of community. We can't, get, we can't get along. We can't talk. And what Christ says is, you, lawyer, are in the ditch, dead and dying, and the person who thinks nothing like you is saving you right now. The person who has different thoughts than you do, votes differently, lives differently, chooses to speak differently, is serving you. So first thing, our intellectual DNA, by Christ telling the story of the Good Samaritan, we must realize our thought processes must change from from tribalism to something else. The second way in which you and I typically make friends is affection. 
right? Uh, Eugene and I can't ever be friends because she's a swamp person from Florida. <clears throat> and they're disgusting. Um, uh, and gators are the worst animal on planet Earth. They're prehistoric animals. How are we okay with them living with us? Uh, I'm a Georgia fan, and so Georgia is hating of Florida all the time. Uh, it's just by nature, you have to do it. You become friends with somebody by affection. So not do you think like me, but do you like me? Do we get along? Can you help me, essentially? This is the idea of if intellectual DNA is birds of a feather flock together, affection DNA says, do I like you and do you like me? So think of it this way. Do you have that friend at work that you would never welcome into your home for dinner, but your friends at work with them? because you don't trust them to come into your home and meet your husband or meet your wife or, or meet your friends. And so you keep them at arm's distance because you say, you serve me something good. You give me an affectionate workplace vibe, but I can't be close to you in intimacy. We do this all the time. Can you serve me? Do you give me affection? Do you show me how to be a better worker, how to be a better graphic designer, how to be a better lawyer, a better student? But I can't stand you as a person. We make friends all the time. And what Christ is saying is if that was the case with the good Samaritan, the, the Israelite that's in the ditch hated him to such a degree would never give him affection. And the good Samaritan served him regardless. Let me ask you a question. Think of the person you hate the most right now. If they were dead and dying in a ditch, would you pick them up and spend thousands of dollars to see them healed and wait bedside with them until they woke up? If they, if they were nasty to you, if they wrote an email to your boss, if they left a horrible Yelp review about your food, would you still serve them? Christ is saying affection has nothing to do with it. Tribalism has nothing to do with it. And then lastly, the thing in which we do, if it's not intellectual, if it's not friendship, it's natural. We do this thing in which we meet somebody and we think they're good naturally, don't we? We just know instantly. Oh, you're a good person. You come from good cloth. You're a good family. I knew your brother and sister. Uh, if you're an older sibling, think of going through school, right? And you set the precedent. If you're a younger sibling, how was that interaction with you? <laughs> if you shared teachers with your older siblings and be like, oh, yes, I had your brother David. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> or it was, oh, yes, I'm now, I'm now compared to him or I'm now compared to her. You come from good cloth. You're cut from, you, you, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, we think. And what Christ says in the Good Samaritan is Samaritans were naturally awful, horrible, disgusting, decrepit people. And what Christ says is they're gospel-centered. That Good Samaritan is gospel-centered. You think they're naturally evil. You think they're gross and disgusting. They're not. Uh, there was this pastor who was planning a church and he met some people who were part of his community. And he took this person uh, to, to food, had meals, shared time with him and the wife. And eventually the, the friend of this pastor said, hey, I want to take you out for a drink. I want to take you out for a meal. I have some questions for you. So the pastor did. He obliged and he went out. And the friend said, I really like you. You're awesome. I want to join your church because you're great. And this pastor said, you don't like me at all. I'm gross, I'm disgusting, I'm horrible, I'm decrepit. If there's anything good in me that you like, do you know what it is that you like in me? You like this Jesus guy who's inside of me, not me. 
See, I think what Jesus is teaching us and teaching you about the Good Samaritan is this. Please don't ever assume people are naturally good or neutral. What he's saying in the Good Samaritan is, lawyer, don't think you're going to be good and go to heaven because you're an Israelite, because you're naturally born into this world of wealth and this world of abundance. That means nothing. Because the Samaritan who wasn't born, who didn't have religious rights that you do, who didn't have a a, a good uh, uh, ladder in economic system, they're good. We're questionable about the lawyer right now. That's the intellectual DNA that changes how you think through people that Christ challenges us. That's the first point. The second point is this. Gospel means change in social DNA. I want to talk about what the Good Samaritan did. That's how, that's the Good Samaritan being the one who is exemplar, who is a model, who thinks rightly about other people. This is the Imago Dei of God's people in this ditch, and I will serve them unendingly, indiscriminately, because this is a child of God. The second thing is a social fabric that changes of the Good Samaritan. He picks this man up. He takes him to another place. He puts him in a home. He feeds him. He clothes him. He heals him. And then he says to the keeper of the place, whatever else he needs, put it on my tab. Now, in our system, uh, again, we have this really, really incredible uh, dynamic that's happening with an American church right now. Really, really incredible dynamic that's happening. And we're divided over issues like this. I'm going to try to suggest to you that what this good Samaritan did is what I will call a, a social safety net. Let me, let me try to tell you again and then try to equate it to other things. And then let me try to challenge you that we as Christians are obligated to serve people that are underprivileged. How we do so, we will talk about here in a moment. But let me just give you again what he says. He says the good Samaritan takes him to a house in which he had no house. He clothes him with clothes that in which he did not have. He feeds him with food that he did not have. And then he says, he can't work. He can't have medical attention. Let me pay his medical bills and let me put a tab going for anything else he needs. Does that sound like anything that we have? See, there's a safety net that is given to this gentleman that cannot do for himself. Do you notice in the entire Good Samaritan, not one time did Jesus say, well, I know why that man is in the ditch. Do you notice that? Later on, Jesus will interact with his disciples and they pass a blind man and the disciples say, why is that guy blind? Who sinned to make him blind? What does Jesus say? Shh, (laughs) quiet. (laughs) I'm gonna heal him. That's why he's blind so that you can see who I am. They wanted a reason. They wanted to blame. They wanted a a way in which to say, this is why he's not good. Do you notice how the, good, the, the man in the ditch, the lawyer, the Israelite in the ditch, never once has a reason for being in the ditch? Christ could have said any number of things. It's his story. Why did he not include that? And why did he include this care for this young lawyer, this Israelite, in which he needed to do it? And I think as we interact with society, Christians typically have a couple of ways in which we interact with government, with the city with society. We either are combative and say, the city's awful, we're good, tear it down. It's God forsaken. That's one option. And by the way, in all of these, I make everything binary just because of examples. I know not everybody says that, actually. You're not saying that at dinner. I get that. Tear it down. It's awful. Second thing, it's not awful. We just need to work within it, so let's accommodate that. So let's not rock the boat. So let's not have statements 
of anything. Let's, let's try to navigate well. Let's try to like basically be incognito. That's a second way. A third way of saying it's useless, it's hopeless, let's start our own community. Let's be a city on the hill in which people will come to because the city, the culture, the country, the world is awful. It's another way. And then lastly, we say we're going to get along, we're going to go into the city and transform it. We're going to change it. Those are the four typical ways. And I think what Christ says in the Good Samaritan is he finds a middle way. I think Jesus looks at this situation and says, the Good Samaritan could have looked at this and, and said, oh, look, look at our country allowing this man to sit in a ditch. How awful. And walked away. It's one option he could have done. He could have said, I'm not going to talk to this guy. I'm not going to talk to the innkeeper about, about faith. Jesus couldn't tell his story. We're just going to kind of work incognitos in the shadows and, and not really say anything else. But it's clear and evident this Good Samaritan was doing it out of his love of Christ. He could have also said, well, we need to transform this. I need to go in there. I need to change. I need to sit with him in the inn. And when he wakes up, I need to tell him, your life is bad. <laughs> Shape up. But Jesus, he doesn't do any of that. He says this man found him, served him indiscriminately, cared for him. And do you notice what's really wild about that? Church of the Beloved, I, if this is you, I'm not, I am not chastising you. I'm trying to challenge you. Do you notice not one time the Good Samaritan gave him a you're invited to Sunday church with me card? He served him without care of the response. Why? Because he was mandated to by his faith. He was forced to, compelling force of Christ. He serves a broken man, the model gospel, gospel person. He uses his money, his time, his connections, his health care, his clothing. He gives him extra beyond measure. This man can't work. He gives him money. This man can't pay for it. Let me give him a grant. If you are a gospel follower, you must ask yourself this question. You have to ask yourself this question. And if you don't, I'm making you ask this question right now. How is your interaction with those who cannot give good things to you? How is your interaction with those who cannot serve you, gift you, give to your church, help your career, help your social fabric? Do you serve them or do you dismiss them because they're not useful to you? That's the question. And why is that the question? But let me try to push further. How many times have we seen somebody that is in need and this is, let's, let's confess. Like, I'll, I'll confess. And then you can say your friend thinks that way, not you. Don't we think if we give somebody money, we're like, well, they're just going to spend it on alcohol. They're just going to waste it. Let me ask you this question. Imagine Christ having this conversation with God the Father, in which Christ is being sent to earth and Jesus says, okay, dad, what if these people use my name in vain? What if these people take my grace and misuse it? What if these people abuse the power that I give them by the Holy Spirit and by my word to take what they want more than give? I can't do that. They're just going to waste it. Could you imagine Jesus saying that to God the Father? I can't. Do you know what he said instead? Father, they know not what they do. Forgive them. Do you notice how that inversion happens? Now, there's wisdom in serving. Don't get me wrong. You shouldn't just, you know, 
get a briefcase of money and start running through the city, throwing it everywhere. If you do, tell me where you're doing that before you do so. <laughs> we shouldn't do that. What should, we should be specific. We should be wise. We should be, we should be very thoughtful. But should it ever cross our mind of, well, if they don't help us back, we can't do it? Heavens, no. How do I know? Jesus later says this. He says, uh, later on in the gospel account, he says, if you're throwing a banquet, don't invite only the high rollers. Invite those who can't give you back and serve them. Why? Because they're my people. A family serves family regardless of status. In their great book, Survival of the City, two authors from UCLA was talking about the change in COVID and the migration patterns that have happened since then. And major cities have this concept going forward. Cities will have to change how they view and how they operate and how they work. And the authors suggest to you, to us, that those who taught they are independent and void of connection with each other will only make decisions that are isolated to their well-being alone. Say that again. Those taught that they are independent and void of connection will only make decisions that are isolated for their well-being above the well-being of all. Or maybe another way of saying it is, it's good for me, but not good for everybody. And what I want to, I think what Christ is saying here, what I want to challenge you with is, it's not what's good for everybody or what's good for me. It's what is good. That's how Jesus speaks. That's how Jesus talks. Pursue obedience to what is good far better than anything else. And then lastly, gospel means change in commands of your heart. The gospel means that you're, not only your intellect needs to change how you think, how you socially interact with the world needs to change, but lastly, your heart needs to change. If the Good Samaritan is the model for you and I to follow, Christ is the model. He's the Good Samaritan in this case. He's challenging the lawyer. The lawyer comes again and says, what must I do to enter heaven? He's asking him, tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm getting in. Tell me clearly. This is, the disciples did this too. Remember, the disciples were going down. They said, who's going to sit at your right hand? Me. I am right. I'm the good one. I'm the MVP. I'm more special. And Jesus stares at the heart of the lawyer. And he says, the good Samaritan is. And then he just leaves it. And the reason why he stares straight into his soul, he's asking him to reckon with his teaching. And this is something I love about Jesus. This is something that he makes clear all throughout his teaching and what we can't escape. If you interact with Jesus, you have two options to come away with. And there's only two options. He's a raving lunatic or he's God incarnate. Either he shouldn't be listened to at all or everything he says should be followed. There's no third way in that regard. How do I know? Uh, Thomas Jefferson famously had a Jeffersonian Bible. Do you know what he did to this Jeffersonian Bible? It's really incredible. He went through it with, a, with scissors, and he cut out different aspects of the Bible he didn't agree with, and he, and he would just cut words out. And so it was, it was like some sort of really weird serial killer documentary that just had things cut out of pages. And then he looked and he says, this is a Jesus I can get behind. He took out moral mandates and social mandates and action mandates, and he just said, I want the feel-good stuff. Does that sound like any culture you know of? Does that sound like anybody you might be? Does that sound like anybody you may know? Jeffersonian Bible is wrong because he couldn't come up against a Christ that challenges him and he rejected it. Here's my encouragement to you. 
The Good Samaritan is a story to a lawyer that says, you must reckon with me. You must reckon with me. I am either a raving lunatic that should not be followed because I'm a megalomaniac that says I'm God. Or I am God incarnate and everything I say is good. That's what he stares at him. The hopes and desires of the lawyer must change because he asks him at the end. Jesus challenges him and says, so which person in this story was good? And the lawyer rightfully answers, but we don't know how far it goes. He says, the one who had mercy. The one who had mercy. The one who has mercy. The one who has mercy. I want to end you with this reminder. There are two types of commands in Scripture. There's an indicative and an imperative. I'm not going to bore you with it. If you get geeked up about Greek, please come talk to me later. I get geeked up. We were on a boat tour and the gal started speaking Greek, and I thought, that is bold choice, Cynthia. That is awesome, and I was totally geeked up about it. If you care about that, come. But there's an indicative and an imperative, and, and here's what those mean. An imperative is you must do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You must do that, and love others as yourself. That's a command. That's a follow. That's a rule as we know it. Think of it that way. And then there's an indicative. Have you ever asked why God gives us rules? Have you ever asked why God commands us to do things? Because we're his sons and daughters. That's why. We're God's sons and daughters. And his sons and daughters act a certain way because our hearts are changed. So when he looks at the man, he says, which person is gospel-centered? And he says, the one who did mercy. Doesn't it seem like doing mercy should get you saved then? Doesn't, doesn't the logic kind of check out there? He says, which one is saved? And the guy says, the one who did mercy. So we say, oh, ergo, I must do mercy to be saved. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that's the imperative. You will do mercy if you love me. And if you don't love me, you won't do mercy. There's this story of a farmer who's a tenant farmer for uh, a boss in the scripture. And he has a huge debt to pay to the landlord of the land in which he is tilling. And the landlord comes to him and says, you know what? I'm forgiving your debt of millions. Millions upon millions, I'm forgiving. Walk away. You don't have to worry about it. I'm forgiving you. And he goes, oh, thank God. Thank you. I, I couldn't have paid that back. I'm so in debt. It would have taken my entire life and I would have never gotten there. And he says, you're free to go. And that tenant farmer turns around and goes find a guy who owes him about 25 bucks. And he says, you owe me 25 bucks. Give it to me now. And the guy says, I can't pay it. So do you know what the first farmer does? Six collections on him. Says, jail him. Punish him. He owes me. It's mine. And he punishes the guy. The owner of the land finds out about the first one. Do you know what happens to him? He's thrown in jail. Why? The church... This is really crucial. He was not a heart-changed person that understands, I've been so forgiven, I must forgive others. Do you know the easiest way to know if you're forgiven? If you easily forgive others. That's the easiest way. Now, how hard is forgiveness? <laughs> really, 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 really hard. Do you know how hard it was to stay on the cross as people spit on you 
crushed you, speared you, hated you, left you. Now here's why this is really important for us. Can you and I ever forgive perfectly? It's a trick question. Let me answer that for you. No. We can't, can we? This seems so high, so lofty. I can't forgive perfectly. Clint, I'm bitter. Clint, I'm hurt. Clint, I can't do this thing. And I will say yes and amen. I still have bitterness and hurt in my life. It's not perfection that Jesus, I, I, Friday Night Lights, no, great, fantastic. I'm so old. Yes. <laughs> Netflix is real and is beautiful. Okay, great. <laughs> Friday Night Lights, Coach Taylor looks at a quarterback and he says to him, I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm asking you to try. Why? Because you want to. Church, you know the only thing that's going to change mercy in your life to forgive other people? It's not a have to. It's not an obligation. It's not guilt and shame. It's a recognition that Jesus has forgiven me so much. I'm going to try to forgive others. I'm going to try to do mercy. I'm going to try to go out. I'm going to try to be gospel-centered and fail miserably. Your intellectual DNA must change. Your social DNA must change. And then lastly, your heart DNA must change because you recognize that Jesus Christ gave so much for you that you can give so much to others because you don't have a debt anymore. You have a surplus. Your bank account's not running dry. It's overflowing in the death and resurrection of your Savior. And that, that will motivate you to forgive, to serve, to do mercy can't be good without a different heart. And you and I, we need heart DNA. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.